Luke chapters 20 and 21 begins Jesus' final week. On Sunday, he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives, while the masses hailed him as their Messiah. Then he entered the temple and angrily expelled the crooked priests and the money changers. On Monday, Jesus was questioned by the temp- in the temple by the chief priests and by the Jewish elders. And yet he avoided their tricks and their traps with great wisdom from above. On Tuesday, Jesus and his disciples rested. It was the calm before the storm. On Wednesday, the Jewish leaders plotted with Judas to betray Jesus. And finally, on Thursday, at sundown, the beginning of the day, according to the Jewish clock, they start their day at sundown, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, then prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and was then arrested, so that by morning light, Jesus had been tried, scourged, and was on his way to execution. There has never been, before or since, a week of such monumental events. When we reach chapter 22, our text this morning, it's already Wednesday. The disciples are preparing for the Passover. They'll eat that night. And verse 1 tells us, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. In the first century, Passover was already an ancient custom. It began 1,500 years prior to Jesus on the night of Israel's exodus from Egypt. And today, 2,000 years later, Jews still keep Passover. But on that night, Jesus gave the ancient ritual a new meaning. Afterwards, his disciples never looked at Passover the same way. But first, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Understand, Jerusalem was packed with people during the Passover. Jerusalem's normal population was a couple of hundred thousand, but at Passover, the city swelled to two million. And if these masses caught wind of the chief priest's plot to kill Jesus, it would set off a riot. Thus, the Jewish leaders kept looking for an opening to do their diabolical deed. They found one in a most unusual source. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Satan had gone to work on a man named Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how they might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Now, we don't really know what was in the mind of Judas when he betrayed Jesus. But my hunch is that he became disenchanted. He expected Messiah to have political aspirations. Of course, Jesus had none. He was angry with Jesus for not meeting up to his own expectations. And isn't this the reason whenever Jesus is betrayed? We disobey him whenever his will doesn't match up with our plans. We bristle up rather than bow down. Well, this is what Judas did. Perhaps he was trying to force Jesus to become more political or militaristic. Did he think his actions would cause Jesus to want to take up arms? Well, at some point, a clandestine dialogue began between Judas and the Jews. They offered him money. 
We learn elsewhere it was 30 pieces of silver. You think his motive wouldn't be just money, but he took the coins. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. See, with an informant on the inside, the Jews now knew Jesus' schedule. They could chart his movements, and they would be able to catch him while he was away from the crowds. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. On this day, every Jewish family chose a lamb for their Passover meal. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Now here, Jesus must have known that Judas was the satanic snitch. This is why he sends Peter and John out with a set of clues. If Jesus had just told them where to go to set up for Passover, Judas may have been eavesdropping. And Jesus would have perhaps been arrested in the upper room. So he says to them, or they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, and here come the clues. Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And a man toting a jar of water on top of his head in that day wouldn't be hard to spot. For in first century Israel, this was the task usually done by the women. So Jesus continues with these clues. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. Church tradition says that this house belonged to the family of John Mark. John Mark was a friend of Peter who later wrote the second gospel. This house was not only the site of the Passover meal, but it played a strategic role for several weeks to come. It was the disciples' hideout after the crucifixion. It was where the risen Christ revealed himself to first the disciples and then later to Thomas. And then on the Feast of Pentecost, the upper room was transformed from a hideout to a headquarters. For in the same room where Jesus said goodbye, he returned to his disciples in the form of another comforter, the Holy Spirit. It was in this room that the Spirit took over where Jesus left off. Hey, there has never been a more vital house. Verse 13 says, and so they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And what was included in those preparations? Well, they purchased a lamb, then some wine, some bitter herbs, the cinnamon paste. These were all the symbols used in the Seder to remind the Jews of their bondage in Egypt and their subsequent freedom. And so when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. You know, the Passover is a family meal, and Jesus' 12 followers had become his family. They sit down, and they celebrate this intimate meal. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. As a law-abiding Jew, Jesus had celebrated the Passover Seder, for each of his 30 plus years on earth. 
But this would be his last observance. The Passover was a picture of our salvation. And there was still work to do. The cross was ahead. By not eating Passover until our salvation is complete would be like putting the champagne on ice. Jesus holds off declaring victory until the work has been finished. The cross is now before him. And he won't pop the cork, so to speak, until he's with us in his kingdom. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The Jews actually drank four cups during a Passover Seder. This may have been the first cup, the cup of dedication. Three cups will follow. And then he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this was a radical reinterpretation of this ritual. Understand, for 1,500 years prior, the Passover matzah represented the Hebrews' faith and haste. They exited Egypt before the bread rose. Thus, it was unleavened bread. But now Jesus gives this ancient ritual a brand new meaning. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. And when we take communion... When your teeth bite and chew the communion wafer, I hope you think of the cat of nine tails that bit into Jesus' back, into his flesh. I hope you think of the torturers who chewed up his body and chewed up his flesh. Actually, to look at a sheet of Passover matzah is to see Jesus in a vivid way. The matzah bread is the only portrait God gave us of Jesus. He was unleavened. Maybe we got a picture of it. Jesus was unleavened or without sin. Notice the bumps are the bruises on his body. The holes are the pierce marks in Jesus' hands and feet and brow. The stripes from the griddle speak of his scourging. It was by his stripes that we're healed. This piece of matzah is the only portrait we have of Jesus. And in this Seder meal, the lamb is followed by a piece of unleavened bread called the afikoman. The afikoman was broken. It was wrapped in a linen cloth. And then it was hidden away until it was discovered by the youngest child. And just like that, the body of Jesus was broken for us. It was wrapped in linen grave clothes. It was hidden in a grave. And three days later, the youngest disciple, John, found him alive risen from the dead. And it's interesting, the afikoman was the dessert portion of the meal. For Jesus not only nourishes us, he's not only the meal, the bread of life, but he is also the one who delights us and satisfies our tastes. Did you know in a single serving of Jesus, you get moral fiber, spiritual vitamins, protein strength, energy boldness, And he satisfies your sweet tooth. You know, with any diet, it can feel like everything that's healthy tastes like cardboard. You ever had that experience? But with Jesus, you don't have to choose between what's good for you and what tastes good. He's both. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. This was the third cup of the Seder, the cup of redemption, and it symbolized the blood of the Passover lamb, the blood the Hebrews in Egypt had spread on the doorposts and thresholds of their house. And you remember how this worked. If the blood was applied, then the plague of death passed over your house, thus Passover. Salvation had nothing to do with the moral status of the people in the house. It all boiled down to the blood. And this is how our salvation works. It's not about our merit or our morality. It's if you put your faith in Jesus, if you ask his spirit to apply his blood to your heart, it's all about the blood, not us. As the old hymn puts it, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Has the blood of Jesus been applied to your heart? I hope so. Well, commentator J. Vernon McGee, he makes an interesting observation at this point. He says, the Lord used two of the most frail elements in the world as symbols of his body and blood, bread and wine. Both will spoil in a few days. When he raised a monument, it was not made of brass or marble, but of two frail elements that perish. Isn't it interesting? God's most significant creations consist of the most simple and common and ordinary ingredients. God still uses the foolish things to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the mighty. In fact, author Bruce Larson goes as far as to put it this way. I like it. We have romanticized the bread and wine as we have the cross. I'm convinced that if Jesus came today, he might even use coffee and donuts. Jesus takes everyday stuff and gives it profound spiritual implications. And this is what he does with all of life. When we surrender to him, suddenly our work and our leisure time, our family, our friends, even encounters with strangers take on an eternal significance. Jesus sanctifies the mundane and infuses everything in life with meaning when we give our lives to him. And then Jesus said, verse 21, But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus' betrayal was foretold by the prophets. It was preordained. But God's providence over the act didn't absolve the hand that did the deed. Woe to the betrayer. And then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing? And this always amazes me. From the very beginning, Jesus knew Judas was the bad apple, and yet he never tipped his hand. You know, if I had been Jesus, you would know who the bad apple was. I mean, I would have signed to Judas, you're doing the dishes tonight, buddy. Judas, you're on permanent latrine duty. There would have been no question as to who the betrayer was if I had been Jesus. But hey, Jesus must not have treated Judas that way, for the disciples had no idea who the betrayer was. In fact, I believe Jesus treated Judas better than the others. He was Jesus' treasurer, a trusted position. He sat in the honored seat at the Last Supper. To the very end, Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to repent. 
Well, now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. What an incredible thing to argue over in Jesus' Last Supper. You know, the other Gospels tell us that in response to this dispute, Jesus gave his men the quintessential lesson on servanthood. Also, after supper, the master did the job of the lowliest servant, and it was here where he washed his disciples' feet. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. In this world, might makes right. Folks seek power over others. And yet Jesus says, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. In God's kingdom, the greatest is not the person with the most servants, but who serves the most people. He is as the younger. You know, in Oriental culture, the firstborn had tremendous advantages, making him the greater or the more privileged sibling. But in God's kingdom, it's the opposite. The humble are the greatest. God's kingdom is not about manipulating others, but about investing in them. Verse 27, for who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? And yet I am among you as the one who serves. You know, to this point in history, you could say that the world had been a pyramid. And the idea was for a person to step on as many people as necessary to climb to the top of that pyramid. But here in this one act, Jesus flipped the pyramid over. In his kingdom, the goal is not to step on or climb over other people. It's to stoop and serve and to wash each other's feet just as Jesus did. Jesus redefined greatness. He says, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In this life, the followers of Jesus are to serve whereas in the life to come, we'll rule. And the original disciples here are given a special reward. Jesus says they will reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. This must have shocked them. Rule over our nation? I mean, how encouraging is that? But oh, they needed that encouragement for what comes next must have scared them spitless. Verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Warren Wearsby points out the Greek, in the Greek text the word you is plural. Satan wasn't just after Peter, but all 12 disciples. He wanted to sift them all. Run them all through the sieve. Chew them up and spit them out. Destroy their faith. And Peter would fail this night, but his faith wouldn't. For Jesus had prayed for him. And did you know, friend, Jesus is praying for you? Hebrews 7 verse 25 tells us that he always lives to make intercession for us. 
I love how Jesus encourages Peter in verse 32. He doesn't say, if you return. No, he says, when you have returned. Hey, Peter will fail, but not his faith. Jesus has prayed for him. Peter's repentance is not an if, but a when. But Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Peter was so overconfident, wasn't he? Self-confidence was his problem. Then Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you deny three times that you know me. Peter will prove chicken before the rooster crows. And I've heard that rooster, or at least one like it. Once Kathy and I, we were walking in Jerusalem, and we walked to the top of the walls of the city. and We were looking out over the old city of Jerusalem when all of a sudden I heard a rooster crow in the distance. Got to pay attention. It's kind of faint, but I hope you can hear it. Boy, when it happened, it was an eerie reminder of Peter's failure and of our vulnerability. And Jesus said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, grab that knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And Jesus is preparing his men for some tough sledding ahead. The environment for Jesus' disciples that had once been charitable will now turn hostile. There's a time for God's miraculous provision, but there's also a time for self-preservation. And Jesus is saying that time is now. Back on Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. People gave him a royal welcome. But now on Thursday, he'll leave the city with a cross on his back. His men also had received a warm welcome. But the tide for them was turning as well. He says, sell your shirt and buy a sword. That was a figurative way of saying, buck up. Rough waters are ahead. And you know, as I look at what's happening in our world today... I think I can say the same thing is occurring. You and I are no longer living in a society friendly to Christianity. It's getting more and more costly to follow Christ. We need faith. And then we're told in verse 37, For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And here Jesus quotes Isaiah 53 verse 12, And he was numbered with the transgressors. This was a prediction of Messiah's sufferings on the cross. And Jesus knew it. It was for his cross. For he says, for the things concerning me have an end. And so they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. They'd misunderstood. You know, when Jesus told them to sell their shirt and buy a sword, he was sounding a warning, a need for self-defense. He wasn't thinking of stockpiling an arsenal for a political uprising. Perhaps, though, that is what Peter is thinking later when he pulls a sword on a man who had come to arrest Jesus. 
But from the beginning, Jesus had taught his ministry wasn't about force. God's kingdom advances not by slaying men, but by swaying men. The sword we fight with today is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And then verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. You know, the other Gospels further identify this place as the Garden of Gethsemane, or the Garden of the Oil Press. And even today, you can visit that garden. Oh, it's a wonderful place to go. 2,000 years later, you can go and see the old olive trees. It boggles the brain to realize that Jesus may have prayed under one of those trees. And so when Jesus came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, there are some Bible commentators I've read that believe Jesus wanted to avoid the cross. I don't believe that for an instant. For Jesus was born to die. And throughout his ministry, Jesus embraced that destiny. In fact, he discussed it over and over again with his disciples. But talking and enduring are two different matters. I think the rejection that Jesus experienced from the men that he had came to save, even the rejection he'll suffer from his own father, I think it grieved his very soul. The cup that Jesus wanted removed was not the cross. It was his feelings of rejection. And I believe God removed that cup and replaced it with his peace. You know, it's interesting. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told that sin and the rule of Satan began in a garden, a garden called Eden. In Revelation chapter 22, we learn that when Jesus returns and puts an end to sin and Satan's revolt, he'll remake the earth into another beautiful garden. It's interesting. The story of mankind both begins and ends in a garden. But sandwiched in between is another garden called Gethsemane. And it's in this garden that the course of human history turned. For it was here that the battle was fought, that wrestled the world from Satan and delivered it back to God. Gethsemane was the garden of decision. It was here that Jesus endured his own pressing. He endured the pain and fears and hurts And he readied himself for the cross the next day. I believe God took away his cup of pain, the pain of rejection, and filled it with his perfect peace. I believe the spiritual battle that delivered us from darkness to light wasn't won on the cross, but the night before in Gethsemane. What occurred the next day had been decided in the the garden. And then verse 43 tells us, an angel appeared to him. From heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now remember, Luke is a physician as well as a historian. And his gospel highlights the humanity of Jesus. And here, Dr. Luke details the agony Jesus endured. He says his sweat was like great drops of blood. And this raises two possibilities. 
First, notice Luke is careful to use the word like. It could be that Jesus wasn't literally sweating blood, but that his perspiration was like blood, that it had the thickness and the consistency of human blood. There is a second possibility. There is a malady known as hematridosis. Hematridosis. It's where intense emotional stress causes the tiny blood vessels in the sweat glands to rupture and expel blood through the sweat. This too could have been what happened. Either way, it's interesting because of the first man's sin in the Garden of Eden, all men have been sentenced to work by the sweat of their brow. In his redemption, Jesus paid for sin's sweat with the sweat from his own brow. Whatever it was that excreted from the pores of Jesus' flesh, it stretched him to his limits. No one has ever experienced the strain and stress that Jesus endured. And so when Jesus rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Imagine Jesus under such stress while his disciples sleep. Jesus was saving the world while his men were sawing logs. And then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. They should have been praying with Jesus. For he wasn't the only person who was about to face severe challenges. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, a mob. And he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? I've heard a kiss defined as a contraction of the lips due to an enlargement of the heart. But that's not always the case. For a kiss can be faked. It can be feigned. Here's the ultimate example. You know, today we talk about a Judas kiss. We speak of this proverbially. It's a fake kiss, a feigned kiss. And it raises the question, why a kiss? Judas could have betrayed Jesus in any number of ways. He could have pointed to him or put his arm around him or tapped him on the shoulder. But a kiss? I believe this was Satan's attempt to pour more pain into his cup. Imagine being betrayed by your closest disciple with a show of affection and loyalty of all things. Satan was pouring salt in the wound. He was trying to discourage Jesus, cause him to abort his mission, not go to the cross. Why die for these people? Well, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them didn't even ask. He struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. One sword-slinging disciple tried to split the guy's head in two. The guy moved his head at the last minute and clipped off his ear. John 18 verse 10 identifies the victim as Malchus and the slasher as guess who? As Peter. And then verse 51. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Notice Jesus' last miracle is to heal a wound inflicted by one of his own servants. 
And sadly, that's still a miracle that Jesus has had to work all too often. Remember, we're not called to slay, but to sway. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me. But this is your hour in the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And just let that ring in your ears for a moment. Peter followed at a distance. Friends, you are always in trouble when you begin to follow Jesus at a distance. See, Peter didn't want to appear too close. Do you have that problem at work or in the office? Do you just not want to appear too close, too radical, too religious? Peter's already compromising. He's shying away from his loyalty to Jesus. And disaster is on the horizon. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Big, bad, braggadocious Peter denies Jesus in front of a campfire girl, no less. I want you to notice the all-too-common progression here. First, Peter follows Jesus at a distance. He devalues any closeness to Jesus. Have you devalued your closeness to Jesus? Second, he warms himself by the enemy's fires. He's now taking comfort in the wrong things and with the wrong crowd. Have you done that? And finally, it leads to his threefold denial. You see, the key here is not to make the first mistake. Follow hard after Jesus. Don't let any distance grow between you and him. When Jesus warms your heart, you won't be tempted by the warmth of this world. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I'm not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Apparently, folks from the north, from Galilee, had a distinctive accent. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. wasn't yet daybreak, but the crow of the rooster signaled Peter's darkness. But I wonder if Jesus wasn't trying to communicate grace through the rooster's cow. Is the harbinger of mourning a message to Peter? Is Jesus saying, a new day is in store for you, Peter? I'm not done with you yet. Perhaps he was. And yet in Peter's ears at that moment, the caw of the rooster marked a crushing defeat. The only thing that could have been worse is what happens next. Verse 61, 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And what a moment that must have been. What was said in that one look? What was all said in that one look? Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. He sobbed. And this could have been the end of Peter. His guilt and failure was so heavy, it could have crushed him. But Jesus had prayed for him, remember. Yes, Peter failed, but not his faith. Jesus had prayed for him and had promised that he would return and strengthen his brothers. Well, verse 63. Now the men who had held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? Now it was common for Roman soldiers to play games that victimized their prisoners especially those that were under a death sentence. In Jerusalem today, at a place called the Lithostrata, or the pavement, the place where Jesus was tried before Pilate, engraved in the stones is a game called the King's Game. If you go there, you see the game. The beating mentioned here may have been part of that game. It was also called Hot Hand. And here's how it worked. Each soldier in the group, except one, would ball up his fist and cold cock Jesus. His eyes were covered so he couldn't brace for the blows. Then after everyone had hit him except the one, the blindfold would be ripped off and he was asked to guess which soldier had not attacked him. Then the blindfold was put back on and this was repeated over and over and over again. It was repeated. It was brutal. Author Philip Yancey, he recounts an incident from the days in Germany prior to World War II. Nazi stormtroopers had arrested an elderly Jewish rabbi and had drug him to the police station. In the corner of the room, several Nazis were beating another Jew to death. The soldiers decided to have some fun with the old rabbi, and so they stripped him naked, and they told him to preach the sermon that he had prepared for his next Sabbath service. The old man asked for his yarmulke, and with a shaky voice, he explained what it meant to walk humbly with God. And as he did, the soldiers poked him and jabbed him and prodded him. And Philip Yancey concludes, when I read the gospel accounts of the imprisonment, torture, and execution of Jesus, I think of that naked rabbi standing humiliated in a police station. That's what we have here, a naked rabbi being humiliated in a police station. When we think of the atrocities that Jesus suffered in more modern terms, they become very, very real to us. And verse 65 is ominous. And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Many other things, as if this weren't enough. There were indignities that Luke couldn't even bring himself to mention. You know, Isaiah 50 verse 6 gives us a detail of Jesus' torture. Even the Gospels don't tell us. Isaiah said, I gave my back to those who struck me, 
and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The bloodthirsty Romans, they ripped Jesus' beard out of his facial follicles. Imagine his face afterwards, puffy and swollen, bloodied and bruised. Jesus looked like a prize fighter who'd gone 15 rounds in a bloody brawl. When Isaiah 53 describes the Messiah's sufferings, it says, His visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. The literal Hebrew reads, His appearance was not human, and his form not like that of the children of men. Isaiah is saying that the face of Jesus was so badly beaten, it no longer, no longer resembled a human face. It was just a bloody pulp. Jesus looked as if he'd been thrown through the windshield of an automobile in a terrible accident or his body mangled in an airplane crash. Trust me, if there had been a funeral, it would have been closed casket. Verse 66, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council. See, it was against the Jewish law to condemn a man to death at night. And so they waited until daybreak to convene the 71 Jews who sat on their Supreme Court, or their Sanhedrin, as it was called. And so they assembled them, saying to Jesus, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Jesus knew this was a kangaroo court. This trial was all rigged. They were after his blood, not the truth. And yet, despite their unfairness, Jesus answers their question, If you are the Christ, tell us. For in verse 69, he says, Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And here he quotes scripture. Jesus draws on messianic images in Daniel 7 verse 13 in Psalm 110 verse 1. And he warns the Jews to be careful how they judge him since one day he'll return and he will judge them. And then they all said, are you then the son of God? He knew the scripture was speaking of of God himself. Now, now remember in the Jewish mindset, the son of a bird is a bird. The son of an animal is a animal. The son of a man is a man. Thus, the son of God is God. So to say you're the son of God is to claim deity. And so they asked him, are you then the son of God? And so he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Often liberals and cultists say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's absurd. That claim is the very reason Jesus was crucified. Jesus was God. He said he was the Son of God. And because the Jews didn't want to bow down to him, that's why they killed him. Now we followed Jesus this morning from the upper room where we gleaned a new meaning to the Passover, 
and heard a new definition of greatness. To the Garden of Gethsemane, where he battled in prayer, was betrayed and arrested. And to the Sanhedrin, where Jesus was beaten and tried. And throughout, Jesus has dealt with Peter. He rebuked Peter's self-confidence and prayed that his faith wouldn't fail. When Peter pulled his sword and acted contrary to Jesus' intentions, the Lord readjusted Peter's attitude and reattached a man's ear. Then Jesus watched as Peter followed at a distance as he warmed himself by the enemy's fire and ultimately denied him. And has Jesus seen you do the same? Friend, has he seen a distance growing that you've allowed to grow between him and you? Has he seen you warming or taking comfort by the wrong fires? This morning, please, say you're sorry. Stop finding warmth and comfort at the wrong places. This morning, you can close down the distance between you and Jesus by recommitting yourself to follow him. I hope you will.